March 3rd, 1976. for part two of our uh, of our <laughs> of our experimenting with the uh, with the psychological impact of sounds you know and and sounds can be very funny too uh, I I know of a recording in which uh, I think it was recorded in Europe in which an entire sequence is played out uh, of nothing but sounds no voices nothing but sounds and you can follow the entire drama and it's a very funny drama but uh Sounds, you know, by the way, speaking of sounds, before I go any further, you know, it has been said that, um, although, of course, that's comparative, but it has been said that, that this century, our time, is the most recorded century in the history of all of mankind. Now, they don't mean just virtually recording, specifically recording. We mean, we mean a, a larger thing than that. We're very self-conscious. Uh, and for that reason, everything we do has to be recorded. Thousands of pieces of paper are kept on every possible tiny uh, uh, thing that happens. It comes out in triplicate. Now, you know about your own office. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't care what office you work in. There's one guy that believes in everything that has to be made out in triplicate. And uh, he can't tell you why. It's just a psychological urge in case you lose the other two, you know, he'll say. So, well, yeah, but we don't even need the first two. Oh, well, you never know. And so, ultimately, everything is saved, and there are vast uh, atomic-proof uh, archives now all over. Yeah, just to save the papers. <laughs> the people are going to go, but the papers are going to stay, man. And uh, to me, this is uh, uh, our, our, really our time, very self-conscious. As a matter of fact, some of the great historical... Uh, moments of our history came about because of our penchant, our fantastic desire to keep everything uh, in triplicate. Good example of that was, you know, when, when they hauled all the guys into uh, the dock at Nuremberg, I mean, you know, all, of, all the top Nazis, well, the, the case was already shut because everything these guys did, even the bad stuff, somebody made sure that it was, you know, nicely, uh, they had a, you know, uh, a receipt, for so many thousand gold fillings, uh, <laughs> you know, that had to be all kept out in duplicate and triplicate. Guys signed it and stamped it and all that stuff. And, and nobody really knew why they were doing this, but except there was a fantastic urge for order. Uh, in the midst of total disorder, there's an urge for order. So in the end, uh, after, you know, this fantastic chaotic thing is uh, there with millions and millions of tons of paper uh, that, uh, that told everything, no escape. Now, you see, Attila the Hun did not keep any records of the number of towns he sacked. 
he did not, <laughs> you know. I could just see these guys, you know. Till of the Hunt comes down out of the out of the uh, out of the mountains with his marauding bands, and before they come in, see, Till of the Hunt is addressing his troops, and uh, I I could just see the sequence. If it was like today, see, if it was if he's like a modern man, I could see Attila sitting atop of his hairy horse tough-looking horseman. He's got chain mail all over him. He's wearing one of these hats, you know, with the horns sticking out of the top. And he's got a shield. He's got this giant beard. And a very smelly, you know, it's the recognized fact that the that the people of that period were very, very ar- aromatic. And so here he is sitting atop his horse, and he's addressing his troops. And he says, I, Attilon, proclaim hereby that there will be no unauthorized rapes, and any rapes that are perpetrated will be recorded in the blue books, which all of you have been issued. Make sure that you put the carbon paper under the sheet so that we have a proper record in triplicate of any rapes that are made. Any pillaging that is done will be authorized by G2. And our proper forms must be filled out before we pillage. There will be no unauthorized raising of any innocent towns unless we receive orders in writing and in triplicate to make sure that there is no mistake from headquarters itself. Are there any questions? All right, men, we know much. We ride to sack Rome. Okay. <laughs> that's not a bad sequence. You like that? But uh, that's the, the thing of our time. Uh, everything has to be put down. And thousands of years from now, when all the dust has settled, archaeologists will be sifting through what remains of our time. Now, unfortunately, in spite of the fact that we have recorded many things, we have not accompanied the recordings with prefatory notes. <laughs> Since we all hope that this, we know what this means. Now, for example, I have I have dug up a, a whole collection of of recordings here that uh, were recorded for sound effect purposes. But this is going to make a fascinating archaeological find a thousand years from now. For example, here is the sound of a very typical, well, I, I should say almost an archetypical sound of our time, recorded with no explanation whatsoever except it just simply says what it is, that's all. Well, that's dramatic, isn't it? Now, if you were sitting, though, in, a, uh, in an archaeological uh, laboratory a thousand years from now, you would be hard-pressed to know what the hell that is. Well, what it was, and, and already, you see, it's gotten to the point where that sound is rare. That is the sound of a four-engine piston airliner taking off. There aren't many of those around any longer, and in a hundred years, they probably won't even know what that sound is if they play it. You know, they, they can't figure it out because by that time, the, the piston airliner will have been so far past in history that no living man will ever have heard one and know even remotely what it sounded like. 
Now, here's a very rare sound. I'll guarantee you this is an extremely rare sound. And uh, again, it's from history. And uh, this is the actual sound. These are not invented uh, or uh, simulated sounds. It's the real thing. Now, listen to this sound. This is a very interesting sound. That's a very interesting historical sound. That's a fascinating sound. You know what? If you'll reset that in there, because that's, that's an intriguing sound. That is the sound of, a, uh, of an actual SPAD, a World War I SPAD 13, which was a, uh, a World War I fighter. And by the way, the fighter that was used in the latter stages, this particular type of fighter, the French aircraft, it was the fighter that was used in the latter stages, that type, not this specific one by Eddie Ritten Rickenbacker, who was the number one ace uh, for the American Air Forces in World War I. And uh, this, the sound of that machine gun is an actual sound of uh, the Vickers machine gun uh, firing through the prop of, uh, of, of a genuine SPAD. This is not uh, an artificial or, uh, you know, a makeup or mock-up SPAD. It's a real thing. And this is the way a World War I SPAD actually sounded to a soldier in, say, a trench on, uh, we'll say, the Marne River, a German soldier with a spad flying over, scraping the ground. Listen to this. This is fascinating. That's what they did largely, too, by the way, in that, that, that war. Deadly. <laughs> fascinating sound. Now, now, you'll admit that's going to make an intriguing archaeological... Uh, discovery, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years from now. I don't know whether they'll know what it is, <laughs> but it is a spad. Uh, the spad, incidentally, if you want to know how it got that name, the, the term spad, S-P-A-D, were initials. And it was the initials of the company that built that aircraft, Society uh, Something Aviation Department it was a uh, it was an initial S P A D a period after each letter. It became known then simply as the SPAD. Now, can you you got the the next cut? Now this is a fascinating cut because this is the same thing recorded. However, the same uh, phenomenon really recorded decades later with the same situation pertaining. Now, what is this sound? In case you're curious what that was, that was the sound of a P-47 Thunderbolt uh, uh, fighter, fighter plane, flying overhead. It was known also as the Jug, very, very lethal airplane. The sound of a P-47 strafing the ground, strafing an airfield, firing cannons. That was not a machine gun firing. That was a, a cannon, a 20-millimeter, I believe, uh, cannon firing through... Uh, uh, through, I believe, uh, firing through the uh, the actual axle, the uh, the uh, prop rotor. It's a very interesting uh, phenomenon, which was a World War II thing. Now, do you want to hear it again? That's a actually that was a uh, a 30 millimeter cannon blowing its uh, nose. Let's hear that again, if you don't mind, because it's, it's it's so quickly it quickly goes over, and it's it's a rare sound. <laughs> 
because uh, this simply uh, wasn't recorded that much. This is the sound of a P-47 thundering over uh, over the ground, firing its cannon through the prop. That's the sound of that one. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a lot of airplane. There aren't many of those left. Now, uh, now we're going to go to an entirely different type of sound. Are you enjoying this at all? You know, sounds are, are really intriguing uh, to me. And we're going to go down to an entirely different kind of sound. And, and in, uh, in the 150 years, I'll, I'll bet a lot of people are not going to know what this sound is because by then it will obviously have changed a great deal, you know, what, uh, the way things are done. And here's the sound of a very common thing. All of you have heard this at one time or another. That's a scary sound. Uh, that obviously is the sound of a big city fire engine going on its way to do the thing that it does. And uh, you know, you know, we tend to think of things as as, as being almost permanent. Uh, it's hard for people to, at any time, anybody, to realize the thing that he's involved in or is so much part of his life will one day be absolutely gone. I mean, just gone completely. In fact, I was talking to a guy the other day, and um, he's not that old. That's what's so interesting about it. He's not that old. He's a man who used to work for a bread company uh, over in New Jersey. And uh, he's in his early 60s. He worked for a bread company. But the thing that made him interesting to me was that every morning he would get out when he went to work, this big bread big city, incidentally. This was in, in the middle of a great big city over in Jersey. He used to go out every morning, and the first thing he had to do was to hook up the horse. They, they delivered bread to uh, stores, and in fact, they had a route. He called it the bread route. You know, he'd go out on the, on the route with a horse. And uh, <laughs> every day, he would go out with his horse. Now, he did not work in a farm. It was not a little town or anything like that. He worked for a big bread company that would be the equivalent today of, uh, of a silver cup or bonds bread or something like that. And they went out every day and delivered, delivered bread. Now, what made it even more intriguing was that he said during the wintertime, they used to go out in a, in a bread truck that was a sled. It had, it had runners on it. Now, you always associate that with, you know, ancient days, way back. I mean, a thousand years ago. This guy, he's about 62 or something like that, and he says that uh, he did that. And he says it would never have occurred to him at the time when he was doing it that there would be a day when... There just would simply not be any horses on the street other than somebody, you know, maybe riding a horse at a riding stable or something. But it just would never have occurred to him that there would be no horses, period, on the street. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you that's possible, very possible, with the car. That we all accept the automobile without question. We just don't ever question the fact that there may be a day. And within a comparatively short time, let's say 50 years, that's comparatively short historically, there simply wouldn't be a car on the road. No cars anymore. Hard to believe. But it is very possible. This is WOR New York. we got everything official here.
this is what archaeology is about, say, that, that, that there will be a day when people will uh, gather in museums, let's say 500 years from now, and they will look at something which we take so much for granted today as part of our life. They will look at this thing as a really intriguing, uh, romantic exhibit. Like, say, for example, a 69 Dodge, <laughs> you know, which we just sort of accept. And yet, yet uh, you know where this hit me? There's a museum outside of Munich. Fascinating museum. It's a museum of technique. You know, most of our museums deal with art. If you go to, uh, say, the Museum of Natural Art or Natural History, they will. Uh, you go to the Natural History Museum here in New York, and you're, you're going to see uh, skeletons of apes and all that sort of thing, which is all fine. It's natural history. You'll see uh, prehistoric animals and so on. You go to a museum of art, and what do you see? Well, you see art. You do. You'll see tapestry, and you'll see armor, anything that could be classified art. But one of the most intriguing museums. Uh, personally to me, is the Museums of Technique and Industry. One of the greatest of all of them uh, is in Chicago, the great Museum of Science and Industry, which if you've never seen this thing, you just haven't seen a fantastic museum. Uh, what, what do they have in there? Well, I'll tell you, among other things they have in this museum, the Wild Museum. And as a kid, you know, we used to go in there every Saturday because, and whenever we could, because it was just, you just could keep going there for a month and never even see a tenth of it. It's so wild. For example, they have hanging from one of the great rotundas as you come in there. It's just hanging, right hanging, right in the air. A stuka. And there it is. It's the real thing. A stuka. It's not sitting there uh, just on the floor, you know, like some dead museum exhibit. It's a stuka, and it's hanging in complete markings, absolutely authentic. It's uh, the real thing. And it's a stuka that was captured in North Africa. And not only do they have the, the stuka, it's absolutely uh, mint condition, they have uh, a big placard that you can read as to how they actually captured the stuka, who was the pilot that flew it, what unit he flew it from, what day it was captured, and how it came about. And it just so happened that this stuka, if I remember rightly, was formed by a, a German lieutenant, and he ran out of gas, literally. He was, uh, he was flying a mission. And uh, for some reason or other, he, he lost his power, and he came down not knowing exactly where he was. He thought he was uh, behind the German lines, and he wasn't. He made a mistake. The plane came down and landed, and landed on, a, on, a, uh, on an Allied airfield by mistake. He just taxied, and that was it. So they caught the guy. They pulled him out of the plane, and uh, there it is. It's now hanging in the Museum of Science and Industry. And I can only tell you this. To, to see a scene like that, to see the stuka in, in absolutely mint condition, it's got unit markings and the whole bit all over the big iron crosses. It's got the big swastika on the tail. And to see this baby hanging in there, that really brings history alive. Oh, I'll tell you, I mean, uh, World War II suddenly becomes very alive. And in fact, in the same museum, they have a captured World War II German submarine, and you can actually go through the subs. Now, that kind of museum is fascinating, but outside of Munich, I ran into a museum that's in some ways even more intriguing because the stuff goes much further back. For example, in this museum in Munich, the famous Museum of Technique, T-E-C-K, as the way Technique, T-E-C-K-N-I-K, 
they have, for example, 14th century, fully restored, absolutely authentic carriages that people rode around in. I mean, in the year 1340. Can you imagine that? There they are. They're sitting there with wheels. And you could see where the, where, the, where the step getting into this thing is worn. Worn by people who are you know, 14th century people. That is, that is really amazing. And I, I remember walking around looking at this thing. And you could see where actually you know, people had worn things and, and carried things around. They have, among other things, uh, they have a collection there of very ancient mechanical musical instruments. Like, say, if you can imagine uh, the very earliest kind of an organ. You know, this is a mechanical instrument. It blows wind and all that, and it's pumped up. These things were five, 600 years old. And, it, and an old guy comes in and plays them for you. Plays the kind of stuff that they play. <laughs> it's wild. And especially when you look out of the window and you see the ancient hills of the Bavarian Alps out there. Oh, wow. I mean, you're really there. And I think that the day is going to come when... Uh, Archaeologists are going to sit around and listen to our commercials. And they're going to wonder about it. Well, it's your turn now, and you don't have to wonder. You know. Okay, Sam, let's hear that next one. How's that for a sound effect? Now, that, that has really fascination, uh, really fascination for a lot of people. That, of course, is Reveille. And uh, Reveille, uh, in, in almost all, uh, you know that they play Reveille aboard great big nuclear ships. So if you think that, yes, you know, if you think this is a thing of the past, it is not. It goes back into military heraldry, and uh, it, 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 it's one of the most ancient of all the forms of communication is a guy blowing a horn. A horn can be heard. You know, this is one of the first things that the Neolithic man did, was to, was to communicate with one another with shells, a horn that would create a sound that was louder and more piercing than the sound of the human voice. And so this is how the, the whole idea of communication with a horn grew up. And it remains today, of course, in the, in the military uh, whether it's the Navy or the Marines, and they're all the same, you know. The, the, the German Army, the Russian Army, all the armies around the world communicate with horns. One of the ones that did most of all, and still does, is the Japanese. The Japanese uh, uh, have a long history of, of blowing bugles late at night to confuse the enemy. And, uh, yeah, uh, here it is, 2 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden you hear bugles blowing. That also happened in Korea. Uh, the idea of, of a bugle blowing at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning has a certain eerie quality to it. But anybody who's ever been in the armed forces, I don't care whether it was just six days ago or whether it was a hundred years ago, knows the sound of a bugle blowing reveille. And, of course, it's all recorded. Uh, they, play, uh, they play these recordings uh, through huge PA systems, and, boy, you hear that at the crack of dawn, and you can already taste the, the rubber bacon that you're about to get. <laughs> you're going to stand out there in the dawn. <laughs> if you want to hear another, this is clear. And I, and I'll, see, we know. See, uh, in our century, we're all sitting here talking about reveille. We know what reveille means. But a guy listening to that recording 
I would venture to say, 150 years from now, would not know what Reveille actually meant. He would think of some kind of a military, uh, probably a herald sound or something, but he would not necessarily know what Reveille meant. Reveille. That's what gets you up in the morning. And you hear that, it's usually in, in different places, sometimes at 5.15 in the morning, other times they'll blow it. It depends on the, on the routine of the ship or the place you're at. They even blew these in subs. And uh, there'd be a reveille sound at uh, 7.30 or 8 or 5 in the morning, whenever they decided reveille was going to be. Now, here's another one that's very, very totally identifiable. Now, that's an interesting uh, call. Because <laughs> that would be known more to people who actually were in the uh, service than, than the people who, you know, have heard. Because that's not heard much in movies. Now, that, that is assembly. Now, it, you, you'd hear this at odd times in the, in the Army or the Navy or the Marines. Just all of a sudden you'd hear it in the daytime. Like, you'd hear the sound of that, that, uh, that call. Uh, and for example... After you would have, generally you'd have Reveille, you'd fall out for Reveille, see, and they'd, they'd, they'd take roll call and so on. And reset that again. I think I'll use that again. So you'd have roll call and all that at Reveille. You'd fall out, and uh, you'd go and you'd have uh, something to eat. It would be breakfast time. you go back and you cl you'd clean up the tent and all that sort of thing. And then uh, all of a sudden, without warning, you would well, usually, of course, you knew what time it was, because you could tell what time uh, these things go off. About roughly five minutes to eight, usually in the morning, you would hear this sound. Five minutes to eight, and you're messing around. Nobody pays any attention. You just hear these all the time. You don't even watch. Okay. That tells you that within the next three or four minutes, you better get out in the company street because you're falling out now. It's called assembly. You're falling out for detail. And uh, everybody lines up, and they've got the clipboard, and that's the whole day's action start done at that point. Uh, they also blow that, that one before. This is blown. That one is blown before this next one is heard. This is a very interesting call, and one of the prettier calls in the, in the services. And they're, they're all the same. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Army, the Navy... Uh, all the services use the same calls, so they don't have separate calls. Although some are heard more often in some uh, services than another. For example, there's, there's, there's certain calls that are heard in the Army that you'd never hear in, for example, uh, uh, the Air Force. Uh, and that's also true of the Navy. The Navy has, uh, has special calls, like uh, they'll, have, they'll blow a call to uh, wash down the fantail. They have very exotic ones. You don't do many washing down the fantails in the Army. But uh, here's one now. Again, this is a call that is heard, and it means a special thing to anybody that's ever been in. This is always a, kind of a dramatic moment in the Army, or the Marines or the Air Corps. I saw a fantastically embarrassing moment one time when this was being blown. And then at that point, uh, usually somebody off in the distance hollers, Present! Hold! And everyone comes to attention. That is called retreat. Now, retreat, 
really means not in the army retreat like you're going to run. What it means is it's the end of the day. It's 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 and 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 they play that as they lower the flag. That is played just as the flag is lowered on the ship or on the post wherever it is, and everyone is all lined up and you're usually. In a, in a clean uniform. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I associate a clean uniform with that. You know, you you all line up. Yeah, it's 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 all kinds of little things. You get out your clean uniform. It's retreat, see. Then after retreat, you fall out. And from here on in, yeah, you fall out. And from here on in, your your day is your own, uh, theoretically. And you can just sort of fool around. You go out. Then you go to shower usually after retreat. You go have something to eat. But the day is over. It's the end of work. And uh, then this one, of course is probably one of the most poignant of all. And all the uh, armed forces all around the world have a version of this. And they all sound remotely like this. Uh, most people don't quite know what it means. I will explain to you after, after it's played what it actually means. Okay. 